Alright, everybody, welcome to the January 24th edition of Cascadian Views. Dan and Chris are here with me today. This is our uh, first episode of the Biden administration. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> there was no uh, great storm or Kraken or whatever Hugh said there was going to be. <laughs> there was not mass arrest of Democratic politicians in D.C. on Inauguration Day. There was... A very strange and yet hopeful transfer of power. Very strange because it did not take place in person, uh, obviously for coronavirus restrictions, but also because of the fact that it, uh, well, was pretty widely considered to be a target for domestic terrorism. Um, in fact, there were people who didn't even want Biden to give a speech outdoors, fearing an assassination. Uh, it was very, very strange, uh, but also quite beautiful. Uh, there was a wonderful performance by the youngest poet to ever uh, perform at an inauguration. There was a uh, rendition of the uh, national anthem by, I believe it was Lady Gaga. Um, it was just a, a very well-performed ceremony. Biden gave an incredible speech. Uh, even Fox News thought it was amazing for a couple days before they realized that it called all the Republicans uh, white supremacists. Um, and then they started backing off it. But for a while there, we were all on one page. <laughs> yeah, I felt like my... I was so relieved, and it gave me an opportunity to reflect how uh, most inaugurations are actually kind of boring. <laughs> and this one was uh, made amazing simply by the fact that nothing blew up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a sign of where we are right now. And yeah, for the day, it was... It, it kind of comedy was the word of the day as you know throughout various ceremonies i kind of stuck around and you know plugged into and uh, a pbs for a little bit to watch the uh, senate session with uh, ossoff and warnock and padilla getting sworn in and then the maiden speeches uh from schumer and mcconnell as majority leader and mcconnell even seemed significantly more conciliatory than I remember his posture being back in 2009. Um, it hasn't really lasted very long, but mm -hmm. at least on the day, it did seem pretty hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the Senate actually surprisingly began to move pretty quickly on some of his nominations after he was sworn in. He had, we had our first confirmation literally like, Five hours after Biden took the oath, it was that evening. Yeah, yeah, it was Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. with, yeah, uh, the new uh, head of DNI, I believe it was. Yeah, Avril Haines, who's mm -hmm. uh, now confirmed to be the director of national intelligence. Uh, she was Obama's principal deputy national security advisor, and she was also deputy director of the CIA. Um, previously, she had worked for Biden when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That's where she got her foreign relations bona fide and she is in fact the first woman to head a uh, to head national intelligence in the United States. Do you think she's a good pick? 
I gotta say, I don't know that much about her. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> she gave a, a few briefings uh, when Obama was president, usually when his, his regular national security advisor was unavailable for something that they wanted to put a, a heavy hand behind. So I'd seen her a few times. I, I don't really know much of her work, though, beyond the fact that Obama trusted her to be his second-place national security advisor, which is pretty good. Uh, the other confirmation we've had so far, and it, it followed a little bit of jockeying over the fact that it needed a waiver to get around federal law, um, but it was General Lloyd Austin, who's been confirmed as the Secretary of Defense. In the end, the waiver passed without too much of an issue. Um, there, there are a few concerns about it. We don't. We want to maintain civilian leadership of the Department of Defense. That's kind of important to the Constitution. When the military starts feeling like they run part of the government, um, place of the civilian leadership, things can get a little bit dicey. Um, but there had previously been an exemption granted for, in fact, I believe it was Trump. Um, but a, a previous recent Republican, uh, and most people came around to the idea that fair is fair, the Democrats should get an exemption too. Uh, but pretty much everybody had longer term concerns about whether or not we should keep on doing this. Yeah, most of the early objections I'd heard to it were actually from Democrats mm -hmm. who were concerned about the president. Yeah, it was mostly Democratic complaining in the House and mostly Republican complaining in the Senate. At least that's how I gathered the story. Yeah, that was my observation as well. Um, this is really, I think this is just the second time that this has had to yeah. be done. The first time was Mattis just four years ago. There we go, it was Trump. Yeah. And, I mean, at that point, I think everyone was still so shell-shocked from Trump and relieved that he'd appointed somebody or <laughs> he picked someone halfway sane to lead the Department of Defense that it was more or less a non-issue for most senators. I think there were only a handful that voted against the waiver for Mattis. But, yeah. Yeah, it's... It does raise... It does raise questions, of course, about, you know, civilian control of the military and, you know, some subversion of the tradition that's been in place at DOD. Uh, I guess we'll kind of have to see how that plays out. I mean, it's it's not like you know where you know the Trump administration where it seemed like he was by the end he was just appointing generals to everything, you know, DNI and uh, not DNI. Yeah, yeah. We'll know uh, Homeland Security uh, as chief of staff. He was just going bananas and ranting about you know his great generals all the time and putting them in all kinds of positions where that experience may or may not be appropriate. Uh, but I think it, it's only DOD that specifically requires the waiver that it be a... Yeah. Yeah. And, and none of these arguments are really arguments uh, against General Austin himself. They're really just philosophical arguments about how we should organize this because the guy is uh, well-respected. He ran U.S. Central Command for three years, uh, 2013 to 2016, He's a four-star general with a 41-year career, um, and 
is now the first African-American Secretary of Defense. He was the first black American in that position. He's, by all accounts, a, a great guy, a stand-up guy, a, a very good pick. It's just, we really need to get away from the idea of the military running the Department of Defense. So, we'll see how it goes. Um, and then, not confirmed yet, but they're apparently working and moving. Uh, the next one is going to be Secretary of State Blinken, um, which doesn't seem to have any big holdups on it, so I imagine they're going to get it done pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, not really a controversial appointment, and you know those inner core cabinet positions are really the ones that have to go first. So, yeah. <coughs> that proceeding. The other person I know who's gotten a hearing so far was Pete Buttigieg uh, for Secretary of Transportation. Uh, I don't know why they're moving on him so quick, other than as, you know, the millennial <laughs> kid your grandparents wish they had. He's pretty easy to confirm, too. He's, you know, oh, they love charismatic. Him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I guess they're putting together wins, because otherwise I don't know why you need the Secretary of Transportation at the front of the line for confirmation. Because everybody likes Pete. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, that's really an underrated skill in a politician. <laughs> it really is. He, he has that down to a T. He has a very natural charisma to him. Which also seems weird that they're putting him in Secretary of Transportation. Like... No offense, but of all of Pete's strengths, I, I don't think infrastructure is one of them. There's got to be a story behind that. Is that just patronage? Is that all that is? It's got to be a place where he could fit, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, just... I brought that up on a group, and then um, I forget who it was, but someone brought up, like, you know, Basically, every secretary of transportation has nothing to do with transportation. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of like a bottom of the cabinet position that you give to someone. Exactly. I mean, I'm trying to think of past ones. A, a lot of times, actually, that's a position that ends up being the giveaway to the opposite party. As uh, you know, we can we can put if it's a Democratic administration, we can put a Republican there, and then vice versa. I think. Mm -hmm. W. Bush's uh, Secretary of Transportation was a holdover from the Clinton administration. Obama uh, had Hood was Ray LaHood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, somewhere where you can you know make a political statement and not make do a lot of damage is how administrations have tended to view it. I I really expected him to be ambassador to the United Nations. Um, I'm kind of glad they went with somebody with more chops on that, Linda Thomas Greenfield, but. The other place I kind of saw him ending up is, you know, as somebody who was most directly and most recently a small town or mid-sized mid mayor, like housing and urban development might have been a good fit for him. He's more in tune with city issues, but yeah. on the other hand, that deals a lot with African-American issues just by virtue of it focusing on large urban cities that, you know, may not have been the best signal either, so that would have been yeah, a weird fit. Back. Yeah. 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 Uh, just seemed like there wasn't a lot of places for him. And transportation is a weird place, but you're right. It is where they stick the people who, you know, matter, but don't really get involved with things. Yeah. I mean, I, to make a positive case for him, I mean, he's clearly a very intelligent person, you know, kind of wonky, likes to problem solve and handle personnel and administration. And that's 
I mean, that's the job of any cabinet secretary. I'd definitely rather have him there than at the UN necessarily. But uh, yeah, it, it seems like a good fit for him. And I think he can probably do a lot of good. It's it's more, it seems more thoughtful than, yeah, a lot of the, you know, throw away, you know, fine. It's a another position that we can, you know, have some bipartisan cred or wasn't, wasn't Elaine Chow the most recent Secretary of Transportation? Wasn't that where she had ended up? I believe yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so rather than just being the ambassador to Mitch McConnell, that that actually does seem much more <laughs> tied to you know the work of the department itself. Yeah. Let me be very well, there's clear. There's also something to be said Things for, are going um, to like a lot of times these cabinet posts end up being kind of end-of-career posts and... Pete is on the entire other end of it, so he might actually yeah. you know, be interested in doing as much as he can with it. Mm -hmm. Which would be great. Having a Secretary of Transportation actually interested in transportation would be fantastic. Yeah. Right. And hey. looking for somewhere to go, you know? Yeah. <laughs> build up, using it to build his profile. You know, it means he's got to do a good job. Mm -hmm. And he, he does seem to be somebody who in an almost childlike way, really does love, like, planes and trains, and just, like, in a wow, that's so cool sort of way. So we'll see how it goes. Um, mm -hmm. The other big movement in the Obama, or not Obama, in the Biden administration, uh, that was a Freudian slip if I ever heard one, <laughs> <laughs> um, has been uh, executive orders. In Biden's first three days, he has signed 30 executive orders so far. Um, I want to remind people that the previous record for executive orders in the first two weeks was, I believe, nine. <laughs> Biden is at ten a day through his first three days. Um, and there is some big ones in there. Uh, I, I'm sitting in front of a list of all 30 of them uh, so far. Some of the biggest ones that uh, I've seen are... He revoked the Keystone XL pipeline permit. Um, he also shut down the lease sale of the uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for oil and gas exploration after only a single day. Um, so the last day of the Trump administration was the first lease sale. Some leases were sold, um, but the vast majority of them were not and will not be. Uh, so that mostly protects the, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, at least for the next few years. Um, he's restored collective bargaining power and various other worker protections to federal workers. Um, this one also included some language that begins to lay the foundation for a $15 minimum wage, at least uh, for the federal government, as much as they can do. It'll kind of be up to the states in, in some of these things. Um, He's directed through the uh, Defense Production Act the production of both vaccination supplies, including vials and, and needles and syringes, as well as production of personal protective equipment like masks. This is something that uh, people have been asking the Trump administration to invoke from the very early days of the pandemic. Um, he's established a pandemic testing board uh, whose job it is to expand the testing capacity of the United States. That's a stark contrast to the Trump administration, which had worked to limit testing, uh, believing that it drove the numbers too high. Uh, 
is there any else that I haven't mentioned here that deserves a, a shout out? Uh, there's also, I guess, an order shoring up of uh, food stamps and you know, I got mm. the programs through SNAP. Uh, yeah, a big chunk were, again, undoing a lot of the executive order vandalism that Trump had done. But like you said, there's a lot of these that are kind of affirmative and new and in response to the current crisis. I mean, mm. it's a lot of very important and exciting action that's happening here. Uh, he signed it, it. If you want to talk about new and exciting uh, policy in this, he uh, signed an order applying workplace discrimination uh, on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity into yeah. the, the federal understanding of the law. Uh, that's consistent with a prior Supreme Court case that found gender indistinguishable from sex, or I don't want to say indistinguishable, but inseparable from sex uh, when it comes to sexual discrimination, uh, which basically applies sex discrimination protections to transgender people. Um, that's now the official policy of the U.S. government, as well as, uh, as I mentioned, a ruling court case that really just cements current law, but it's nice to see it actually acknowledged. Um, you were talking about undoing Trump's record. That brings me to a few big ones I missed. We're rejoining the Paris Climate Accord in 30 days. Um, we've rescinded the 1776 Commission and uh, directed all agencies to include racial equity in their training. Uh, and we are now requiring uh, non-citizens to be included in the census count. So, so some of the, yeah, some of the other things I was just uh, looking over are he's firing people too that mm -hmm. Trump had attempted to burrow in to the you know administrative apparatus of the government. Uh, you know some real nasty characters too. Actually, there was a bit of drama on day one with the uh, general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board who uh, Biden asked for his resignation. He said, "No, you'll have to fire me," and so. He did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking fired him. A real piece of work too. I mean, he was actually uh, Reagan's guy responsible for the Patco firings back in the '80s. So, I mean, good riddance to some of these terrible people that were attempting to burrow their way into the government for God knows how long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the one that he couldn't fire, he's still managed to play some good hardball with. Exactly. Uh, if we want to talk about other firings, too, um, he got a, a Warren disciple in to run the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, yeah. you know, reestablishing its original intent after it was basically hijacked by the financial industry under the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. uh, just a lot of movement. And... I guess they're going to start moving legislation as well next week. They plan to introduce a $1.9 trillion bill for COVID relief, which is seemingly going to have to pass without a single Republican vote, which means going to get an answer about the filibuster pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, I guess that, I guess this basically comes down to whether or not Manchin wants to actually pass legislation. That, that mm -hmm. seems to me to be where we're going to be at with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little surprised that McConnell has tried to uh, make this fight so early and so hard just because, I mean, 
this is the time when everybody's paying attention. If he's going to pick fights over some, I mean, take some egregious stance, particularly on stuff like, you know, COVID relief, which, I mean, honestly should be everybody's in everybody's interest. And I think it would be the easiest to lure, you know, the holdouts like maybe McConnell or Cinema, you know, get them on board with, you know, getting rid of the filibuster as opposed to some something more controversial like uh let's say you know puerto rico statehood or something like that it's a weird place to draw the line but i'm glad it's kind of happening because you know we really need to see one way or another whether this democratic senate majority is actually going to be able to govern or if we're going to get a repeat of 2009 where we are wooing people who just have signaled that they will not be reasonable. Uh, I have a feeling it's it's a 2009 example. Hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know why, after everything that's happened, it's looking for your own, like, self-preservation and, and what the fuck went down in this country. I don't see how you continue to, like, hold that line. But apparently every single one of them is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which I think is what we actually have going for us, is that people people remember the last 12 years, like both the Obama portion and the Trump portion, and the Republicans have so quickly turned non-conciliatory that... I think it might actually be easier to do this sooner rather than later. Yeah. As I, I mean, said, too. Yeah. My feeling had been that we, maybe we could do it if, you know, we went through six months of just egregious obstruction after obstruction. But, yeah, like I said, McConnell is drawing the line early and hard. I, so. On a certain level, though, if you're going to sink all your political capital into something... Doesn't it make sense for it to be the thing that means you need less political capital capital in the future? That just seems smart yeah. to me. Like if you're going to say that we're we're never going to be able to get everybody onto one boat again in the future, why not do the thing that means you don't have to get everybody onto one boat in the future? <laughs> yep. <laughs> that that just seems like smart planning at at a certain point. Um, so yeah, I, I'm definitely in favor of, of nuking it. Um, and, and kind of consequences be damned a little bit at that point. Every other, like, democracy manages this, this, like, concept of majority supremacism better than, than us, basically. Like, it's even enshrined in the unwritten and totally not real but completely enforceable British constitution that parliament gets to do what it wants. <laughs> the The majority can't have their hands tied, even by a past majority. You cannot bind future parliaments to a right. certain law. Like, that is fundamental to their system. Um, I, don't, I don't get why this is so controversial in the United States, but apparently it is. It's... I mean, I'm still surprised that it made it through the first couple of years of Trump's term without being removed. And, you know, Trump was certainly agitating for it. But, yeah. Hmm. We'll see. I I mean, 
I think it's a good opportunity to the standard Republican playbook is make the government not work, say, see, government doesn't work. You shouldn't vote for Democrats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we just need to get ourselves out of this business, pass a yeah. bunch of stuff, pass a bunch of stuff that has the support of like, most of it has the support of 60% or more. Right. And if you still get slaughtered after that, all right, fine. At least, well, at least try. Yeah, we've made changes. <laughs> you know, get slaughtered for doing it rather than having failed to do anything for once. Right. And also just establish the precedent that you can do it. Like when that's just the expected outcome of a democratic win in an election, it becomes less of a controversial thing in the future. Um, you know, you, you kind of expect that when Republicans take over, they're going to try to, you know, lower taxes and they're going to try to pull back at, at, you know, entitlement programs in their language, what we would call you know, social safety net programs. Um, that's just kind of baked into the equation. You expect that when Republicans are going to win. So fighting against it seems a little bit futile. That's what people voted for. If we turn it into a thing where when Democrats win, the minimum wage goes up and we invest a lot more into schools and unemployment. And these things become less controversial in the future because they're what people knew they were voting for, at, at least on the Sunday shows. I think they're already what people are voting for, but it gets baked into the conventional wisdom at that point. Yeah. No, I mean, that's actually a really good point. You know, we have with our government governing system, we've got so many checks and balances and things that divorce you know the will of the people as is expressed in the voting booth from what results actually come out of our government you know between you know the separation between the legislative and the executive and then the separation of the house and the senate and these additional rules like the filibuster which means it can't just be a majority it has to be a super majority people either vote for republicans or vote for democrats and if the results don't change that much I mean, they just assume that there's no difference between the two. Right. So mm -hmm. there becomes very little consequence. And so we end up having idiotic elections like 2016, where the whole media is obsessing over, you know, entirely trivial and trivial and consequenceless stuff like email server practices. And <laughs> it would be a good thing to encourage everybody to take the whole process more seriously. Yeah, I, I think for the Republicans too. Like if they mm -hmm. if they were in a position where they actually get to pass all these things and then have to run on having passed them their next election. Yeah. Well, I'd like to have them answer like, okay, you elected a Republican House and Senate, so did something get done about the global pedophile cabal that you're <laughs> telling everyone is out there, or or what? Are you going to pass a bill about that? Come on, <laughs> let's have some accountability here. I mean, I was thinking more like, oh, look, they actually cut your Social Security benefits by 20%. Is that what you wanted? Do you want to reelect this party? <laughs> but, but yes. They're beyond that now. Also the global pedophile ring. Exactly. We're going to have a federal investigation into comic pizza. <laughs> I think we've had one, haven't we? God. Have we? Damn it. <laughs> Would not surprise me if Devin Nunes did something like that. We need to find out if they have a basement or not. Right. The um, 
the other of three stories coming out of the Senate that we have this week is uh, they've laid the groundwork for the impeachment trial. Trump now has a defense attorney who is seemingly better than every other attorney that Trump has ever had because I've never seen one of Trump's attorneys say no comment as much as this guy has. He will not talk about this case in the media, which is just exactly what lawyers usually do. Mm -hmm. Like, they always tell you to shut the fuck up. Not talk. (laughs) You're just going to make things worse for yourself. Save it for the courtroom. Um, He's doing all these things. He is not Rudy Giuliani. These are not, you know, media spectacles where he gets to try the case on CNN or whatever. Newsmax, if he's feeling particularly peckish that day. Um, We've also got a date for the trial. I believe it's February 8th. Um, that means it's it's kind of punted a couple weeks to give everybody time to prepare, but it's coming sooner than Republicans wanted to want to delay a month. Anything yeah. else? Did I miss anything in that? Um, no, I don't think so. The only other thing that I've noticed over the past week is that I, I think I said last week mm-hmm. that I just don't see the Senate Republican votes there to convict and Boy, have they doubled down on my perception of that over the past week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that seems to be cemented. Came out saying. Came out saying what? Well, come out saying, like, we we shouldn't hold it. He's not in office anymore. It's stupid. <laughs> right. Yeah. No jurisdiction now. Blah, blah, blah. Except yeah. for John Corrin, who has doubled down on that by saying, well, if we get power in two years, we might impeach ex-Democratic presidents. Right. Are, are we worried about any ex-Democratic presidents coming back? I mean, the point of the <laughs> impeachment after he leaves is to uh, bar future federal office. Uh, Obama served two terms, can't really be president again. Clinton served two terms, can't be president again. I don't think anybody's really considering pulling it's a Carter. weekend at Bernie's <laughs> with, with Carter. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I don't know. It seems like the kind of psychopathic thing they might try to do to say get Obama's Secret Service detail yanked. But that's you know. not. You're still an ex-president if you're impeached. But you can have the. You can have. I believe that's one of the potential consequences of impeachment is eliminating a lot of those uh, post-presidential uh, perks. And, I thought it just uh, eliminated like the staffing perks. You know, the fact that the federal government will pay for you to have a staff and advisors, even as an ex-president. I didn't think it covered secret staff, service protection. travel, and I think protection as well is one of those things that can be revoked. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, and, it's not going to be. We don't have the votes. Chris is right. That became pretty clear this week. They just it's It's a matter of doing it to do it, to say, okay, well... Trump might have been impeached twice, but we impeached Obama three times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the other Senate news is, after what I assumed was a settled argument, I have now learned, thanks to you, Dan, who I'm sure will mm-hmm. explain all this, that there's now a, an organization fight in the Senate between Schumer and McConnell. Uh getting off to a rocky start in their relationship. Yeah, it's been a bit of a showdown, I guess, that's been developing over the past few days. 
Uh, I mean, in the lead up to the inauguration, there were some stories going around which were causing minor outrage on social media about, you know, the power sharing arrangement that McConnell and Schumer have been trying to come up with. I mean, partly that's been to deal with the fact that, you know, there are just 50 senators, uh, 50 senators of each party, rather. And so a lot of things like organization of committees, uh, who gets to be the chair, who, how many of each party are on a respective committee and so on and so forth have been up for grabs. And so there had been looked like a fair amount of progress on getting all of that settled. You know, Democrats, of course, would be chair since they had the majority with uh, Kamala Harris breaking the ties. Uh, but they would still be able to advance uh, things out of committee, even though it was evenly split, you know, on a 50-50 vote. Uh, what is now kind of causing the holdup appears to be some additional rules that McConnell has been insisting on maintaining the filibuster. And we, as we were talking about earlier, that's going to be pretty key to getting any kind of legislation passed, it appears. And so McConnell has been very dug in on you know, a promise or you know, a rule structure in place to eliminate any possibility of getting rid of the filibuster before the end of the term. And so that seems to be the holdup. Schumer has said that's just not going to be viable. We can't commit to that over the course of you know this entire term because you know who knows what kind of obstruction they may be uh -huh. dealing with. And it's not a commitment that Republicans have ever made in the past. I mean, it's not like they bound their hands from eliminating the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees just two years ago, or four years ago now. Goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, this is at an impasse, and like we were talking about before, all eyes are on Manchin. Uh, some others are also kind of keeping an eye on what, you know, Kirsten Sinema's doing, or uh, what, the other one that keeps getting thrown out there is Dianne Feinstein, which is totally inexcusable for a California senator, but just the possibility that some of these senators may not be willing to go ahead with this radical change, but, I mean, in the end, that means you've basically left McConnell in charge of the Senate. So I would hope, and as we talked about before, that they man that Schumer manages to corral the votes together and they're able to proceed and actually govern. But it's, it's going to be tense. Even enshrining filibuster protection in the rules, I don't think would actually like stop them from changing it. Um, the the rules are enforced by the parliamentarian, and it just takes right. a majority vote to overrule the the parliamentarian. If somebody complains to the parliamentarian that the the Senate is out of order because they just you know did something against the rules, and the parliamentarian carries the the objection, you can just vote fifty fifty, and Kamala splits the tie that the parliamentarian's wrong, and you can totally do that. Right. So it. I don't know. I don't see what the I don't see what McConnell's play here is because it doesn't actually do anything. Um, yeah, I'm curious about that too a little bit, but I have read speculation that he he's concluded that it's going to happen and he wants to make the Democrats own it. Mm. Well, I mean, they're going to have to anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm more frivolously than if he'd blocked everything for a year or something. I don't know. Right. I was going to say that the exact same process you'd use to 
to overrule the parliamentarian. That's how you nuke the filibuster to begin with. That's how Republicans get it. That's how Democrats would do it. The, the chair would declare a vote carried on a bare majority. The parliamentarian would say that's not correct. You need two-thirds, and then you overrule the parliamentarian. So it's the exact same process you would do to nuke the section of the rules that require you to not nuke the filibuster as it is to nuke the filibuster. It's a pointless fight on McConnell's part, I think. If it's it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Yeah. Putting a, a weird extra step where you have to do the same thing twice in order to do it uh, just seems dumb to me. But, I, you know, I'm not McConnell, and he's been around for a very long time. I could very well be wrong on this, maybe as a, a grander plan. He, he certainly seems to see it as a fight worth having, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then our, our last national story of the week, before we quickly move into some local stuff, um, the Arizona GOP is in kind of complete meltdown. They just carried um, every single one of 19 motions, uh, or 19 petitions or something like that. I don't remember the exact language they used. Uh, of censure against a number of prominent Republicans, including their sitting governor, Doug Ducey, uh, against Cindy McCain, John McCain's widow, against former Senator Jeff Flake, uh, really just about anybody. I believe they uh, I believe they also censured Garrett Archer, or at least somebody submitted his name and it was accepted. I don't know if it was actually put to a vote or not. Um, he's a former uh, staffer for a number of Republican legislatures in Arizona who's now widely known on Twitter for doing anal uh, election analytics. Uh, Maricopa Incoming is kind of a trademark of his. Uh, just a bunch of anybody even remotely associated with Republican politics and sane the state of, of Arizona. <laughs> You don't even have to be all that sane. I don't think Doug Ducey is a middle-of-the-road Republican or anything like that. No, he's a right-winger. He's, yeah. he's out there. The only thing is he, he acknowledges that the election happened. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, it also re-elected Kelly Ward by 37 votes. It was a very narrow victory. Um, I don't know how she won re-election in her time after losing two Senate primaries, I believe. She then uh, mm -hmm. kind of pivoted to running the Arizona Republican Party and during her watch has uh, lost both Senate seats and the state voted for the Democratic presidential nominee for the first time in two decades. So, really successful. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I feel like it's early to be handicapping 2024, but... I feel like that helps us. Yeah, I mean, it helps us in 2022. I was kind of mentioning in the banner before we got started that uh, Doug Ducey had announced today, I believe, or you know, told The Hill today that he's not going to be running for Senate against uh, Mark Kelly in 2022. Right. And that's a really important race for them to run, and he's their best shot at beating Kelly. So... That's had some bad consequences for Republicans already, and I would say hopefully that sticks because I would really, really don't want him to run against Mark Kelly by, by the time 2022 comes around. So, you know, I, I hate to see a party completely lose its mind, but if it's going to be hurting itself like this, 
step back and watch it happen and have some popcorn. Yeah, I mean, it may be that they have to go a little more bonkers before they can come back. Like, <laughs> have to make themselves totally unpalatable to any section of the center. Yeah. Like, they're going to be the party of Q. That's that's what they're going to be running on. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> okay. Uh, and then we've got a couple lo- uh, local stories this week. Uh, I guess we'll start with Dan and I, since we're uh, looking at the same topic in the Northwest. The uh, vaccine kind of train is moving on um, very, very slowly in Oregon, I guess a little bit faster in Washington. Um, We now have a a pretty firm schedule um, of how Oregon's vaccinations are going to go. Uh, beginning this week, the state is going to begin vaccinating teachers, um, and more or less just teachers. There are some some other carve-outs, people who work in communal living areas like residential care facilities, old folks' homes, and whatnot, but it's, it's mostly teachers. Um, beginning the week of February 7th, we're going to begin uh, allowing seniors 80 and over to be vaccinated. Uh, February 14th, it's going to be seniors 75 and over. A couple of weeks later, February 28th, seniors 70 and over. And beginning March 7th, uh, seniors 65 and over will be eligible to get the vaccine. Uh, this pushes the schedule back quite a while. Um, originally this week, we were going to start vaccinating seniors 65 and older uh, because of delays in the vaccine and the decision to prioritize teachers. That's now going to be greatly slowed down and spread out over a longer time period. Um, some people are unhappy with this, but we talked a little bit last week, Dan, and you really, this is all about getting schools open again. Yeah, you were, yeah. You were completely right with that. Yeah, I think that's got to be the key drive there. I mean, here in Washington State, we've also been seeing some modification to our guidelines and right now I believe as of this week now uh vaccine is now available to anyone over the age of 65 and i believe that education workers are slated to come into the rotation in the beginning of february um but it's also being distributed on the honor system so someone says that they qualify uh there's not a question asked so, yeah. which honestly, if you have the vaccine, seems smart. Um, exactly. I, I really feel, and I was reading a lot of thought leaders on this, and I, I do generally agree with them that we were planted much too cute over who should get the vaccine. Uh, really, we should just try to distribute these doses. Uh, it almost doesn't matter who's going to get it. We should try and prioritize some people, but the important thing is getting people vaccinated, not just who were vaccinated necessarily. Yep. Exactly. Um, but I think you know, some of the good news is it appears that the uh, Biden administration's goal of uh, getting up to, I guess, 100 million over 100 days, so an average of 1 million per day, has already been hit. So hopefully, 
hopefully that still continues and that pace continues, especially with things like utilizing the uh, Defense Production Act to make sure that more is produced and rolled out to the states and that pace can be kept up and we can reach a critical mass of herd immunity by sometime in late spring, early summer, I guess that would be. And we're, um, I, I don't know if Biden is going to be able to undo it, but one unfortunate part of the vaccine rollout, you remember me mentioning how there were extra doses in a lot of these vials, how you were able to get, you know, one or two extra doses per vial because of the, the overfill that they generally do. And in this case, weren't all that specific on because they didn't really know the parameters. Um, apparently Pfizer has been able to convince the federal government to not only pay for those extra doses, but count those extra doses towards its uh, vaccination delivery like contract. So they'll be delivering less overall vials than originally anticipated uh, and getting paid for that overfill that we were able to get some doses out of. Yeah. Which is a hell of a deal, I guess, if you can get it. (laughs) Corporate America gonna corporate America. Goddamn. And and Chris, I guess, your local contribution, you have a wonderful story about some homemade mittens for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, for whatever reason, these things happen. uh, Probably because he's such a grumpy puss in every picture, every passively sitting picture you take of him. <laughs> the picture of Bernie Sanders at the inauguration has gone totally viral. And, um, you know, props to be offered. He immediately said, like, well, I got these mittens from a local Vermont producer whose website has now been crashed by all the attention. Uh, so, <laughs> this was a woman who gave him the mittens at, like, a campaign stop a few years ago, and he's worn them since then. She's a teacher, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, teacher who crochets on the side, yeah. And they were and, partially made out of recycled uh, plastic bottles, recycled soda bottles. That's how we do it here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's kind of heartwarming, but kind of silly. Um, <laughs> I do appreciate that he is actually put together like a sweatshirt for sale on his site and is uh, donating the proceeds from that to charity, but... I feel like the most important Bernie Sanders news over the past week is uh, really that he's the budget chair now and is already saying, if we can't get Republicans on board with passing Biden's package, we'll take it to reconciliation. Good. (laughs) Like, I'm hoping long-term that's more substantive, but it's still cute. Absolutely, yeah. And to be honest, when, uh, like, building bridges with Republicans seems less likely than ever, I don't mind somebody you know, in the chair of a powerful committee like that, who's uh, not good at making friends, I guess I'll say. <laughs> it's less right. important in, in this sort of atmosphere. Uh, so I really look forward to what Bernie's going to get done in that position. Uh, it's going to be exciting. When he, he's, he's not a guy who really coordinates well with others, especially others who disagree with him on certain things. Um, and now he doesn't have to be. So it's yeah. it's a wonderful place to have him now. It's a yep. good time for a bulldozer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's perfect. All right, guys. Well, I guess that's going to do it. Uh, is there anything else anybody wants to mention before we we call it quits? Uh, let's see. Um, Biden is still president. Trump is still not on Twitter. 
Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. I, uh, I wonder how long it's going to be before, like, the conservatives have something to replace it. Um, I, I noticed the Arizona Republican Party, just to circle back to that topic, not only has begun posting images with Q slogans um, on it, such as We Are the Storm, that's their new branding, uh, they've also oh. opened an account on Gab, which is mostly a white supremacist uh, communications platform. So, fun times there. I, I really don't know how long they're going to last in the mainstream. Just a weird time. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. Uh, yeah. I hope you guys have a great week. And you too. You talk too, to you yeah. next weekend.